I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. Okay, uh, this is one of those episodes where I get to say I don't really have a lead-in because it covers a topic that I don't really have uh, a formal background on, uh, which is very exciting. Uh, What I will say is that archaeology and preservation in the Mesopotamian region, which can roughly be characterized as Iraq and Kurdistan, is an incredibly rich topic because everything here is so... Uh, old. (laughs) We're in the part of the world where civilization began, and as a result, there's all kinds of activity and research out here uh, that happens. So because of how much there is to cover and how limited my time is, I'm just going to say today we have two guests. Uh, The first interview is with Professor Glenn Schwartz from Johns Hopkins University. Professor Schwartz is currently working on the excavation of an ancient city from the Bronze Age called Kurd Kabrstan, located just southwest of Erbil. And my second interview is with Professor Zainab Bahrani uh, with Columbia University. And Professor Bahrani is originally from Baghdad and has dedicated the past two decades not just towards archaeology, but also more specifically towards heritage preservation, the restoration and preservation of ancient sites out here, which there are plenty. Uh, And she's currently working on the restoration of Badinan Gate in Amadi. There are some overlaps uh, in what I talked about with both. Uh, In particular, I discussed the developments in the region with both Iraq and Syria with regards to conflicts that are currently happening in the region or that have recently happened in the region and how it affects the field of archaeology as a whole in the Middle East. Uh, But I'm going to let them talk about it more. uh, So without further ado... Here's me with Professor Glenn Schwartz. Professor Glenn Schwartz, thanks so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. I wanted to actually start with, uh, you've spent a large portion of your career working in Syria, and I was wondering if we could start with a little more of your background uh, in, in this area before we get to talking about your current site. Yeah, I worked for most of my career in Syria. I, I started out, well, I was a graduate student and I was working uh, at a remarkable site. And then um, when, I, when I directed my own projects, uh, I started with a, um, a little village site in north, northeastern Syria from the third millennium BC. And um, that's the period when cities first start to appear. And what was unusual about that project was that most people, most archaeologists, they go for the big sites, for the big urban sites. And, and we deliberately went for a little site to see how the urban revolution affected people in the little villages. Uh, so it was a fascinating um, uh, site, really. And then um, I moved to a larger site uh, in West Syria, near Aleppo, that, called Omal Mara, that um, turned out to be especially interesting because it had a complex of tombs that belonged to high-ranking people. Maybe they were royal tombs. And there was evidence of all sorts of ritual that went along with the uh, burial of these very important people, including the burial of animals in their own tombs. So that was an opportunity to kind of learn about um, the ideology of the uh, elites when urban societies first started to emerge uh, in Syria. Syria is very rich archaeologically, and, and the archaeologists who worked there, we were all aware that, that um, we had it really good. You know, it was a kind of like a paradise archaeologically. Um, there were so many sites, so many interesting results, and, and the, you know, the um, Syrians are, were very hospitable, and it was you know, pretty easy to work there. Yeah, so it was a big shock when, when uh, the war began and everything came to a stop and the country was torn apart. 
Well, I actually wanted to ask about how do political developments, you know, affect archaeologists? Does the popularity of excavating a country's past become affected by uh, having a troubled present? And how how has Syria's situation affected its standing uh, in the field of archaeology? Well, everybody knows that Syria is, is a rich has a rich archaeological heritage, but um, that heritage has been so uh, seriously uh, compromised by, by the uh, events of the past 10, 12 years. So uh, many, many archeological sites were, were damaged or destroyed during the war. Of course, ISIS you know, deliberately targeted archeological sites. And even, um, even you know, the elements that didn't, um, they often wanted to make money by, by looting archaeological sites and trying to sell objects on the antiquities market. So, you know, some of the sites, you, you look at Syrian sites from the air uh, and they look like Swiss cheese. There's just like so many holes from the looters. So it's a terrible, terrible disaster in terms of archaeological heritage. Um, and the archaeological world, you know, hopes that some kind of new birth can take place in, in the archaeology of Syria and recovery from, from that disaster. I was wondering if you could tell me actually a little bit about your interest working in Kurdistan. Uh, and I was wondering if we could get into, do the sites uh, here differ from the sites that you worked on in Syria? I mean, for I mean, um, any number of you know, geographic reasons. Well, the, the, working in Kurdistan, the reason I started was because I couldn't work in Syria anymore and I had to think of something else to do. Um, and in fact, at first, I had to decide whether to keep digging or whether to just concentrate on analysis and publication. But I thought it, I thought I was too young back then to, to just quit digging. And so I needed a, an idea for where to go. And at that time, Kurdistan was opening up archaeologically. Um, of course, you know, during the Saddam era, there was very little archaeology that went on. And, you know, it was a very troubled period. But um, since, uh, well, the aughts, um, that foreign archaeologists began to uh, be encouraged to, to work in Kurdistan. And uh, so um, it's been fascinating, actually. Uh, uh, and I'm you know, really glad I, I did start the project. Um, as, as far as um, how the sites might differ from those in Syria, um, you know, first of all, Middle Eastern archaeological sites very often take the form of mounds, right? The tells in Arabic. Um, and so that's true in Syria and it's true in um, Kurdistan. I mean, one difference is in Syria um, where I was working, there's a fair amount of stone available. So the architecture was a mixture of stone and mud brick. But where I'm working now in Kurdistan near Erbil, there isn't much stone. So the architecture is all mud. And so there's a, like a different challenge as to how to identify the ancient buildings and, and uh, you know, um, how to delineate them. Uh, you look for changes in consistency and feel. Um, and frankly, um, it's much more difficult here at my site in Kurdistan to do that than it was in Syria. Um, I guess for geological reasons or, or, or maybe because it's a more humid area. So in my site, a lot of the mud architecture just kind of congeals with the soil around it. And you can't tell the difference between one and the other. Uh, so that's been an extra challenge. 
I wanted to actually talk about something specific you just mentioned about your site because it's one of the cool things that defines it is these things that look like, you call them tells, and but they look like hills on the ground, mounds. I was wondering if you could tell me what what are those mounds and, and what does that mean for the overall excavation of the site? Well, they seem to, they're peculiar to the Middle East, especially, and they seem to uh, develop because of the mud architecture. So when people build buildings out of mud or mud brick, um, you know, they don't last that long. They start to uh, fall into disrepair uh, or they're deliberately um, abandoned or, or knocked, knocked down in order to build something new. And when you, uh, when a building falls into ruin or when you, when you decide to, to build a new one, you know, they, they can kind of bulldoze the area and level it and build a new building on top of that. And so you get a little like a foundation of ruins that the new building is built on top of. And then that building falls into ruin or is abandoned or, you know, uh, just the people decide to build a new structure and that is bulldozed. And then a new building is on top of that. So the, the, the result, the cumulative result of all that activity is a, a consistent raising of the community over the landscape. It gets higher and higher as they keep building and leveling and building and bulldozing on and on and on until you get these hills. Um, and some of them are remarkably massive and, and tall, as much as 40 meters high. Um, and that represents that can represent thousands of years of occupation, you know, thousands of years of constant building and rebuilding and, and leveling and raising. And what kind of things do you find in those hills in the different levels? I mean, what, differ, what differentiates uh, uh, different millennia from one another? What, do you find specific things within each layer? Yeah, of course, you, you find the remains of buildings, you find the remains of um, the objects that people use, the pottery, the tools, the weapons. Um, you also find the remains of the animal bones. So, so the animals that they exploited or that they were interacting with. Um, plant remains. So you, you can learn about what plant foods they were using and eating. Uh, there's a whole range of, of um, materials that, that you know that people used while, while they were living at, at these communities. Um, many of them can be fragmentary. I mean, the buildings there they sometimes the walls are only you know 10 20 centimeters high now um although this where we're excavating now we're digging a building where the where the walls are, are over two meters high still um and you know that's fun when that happens but uh and in, in different periods there are different kinds of materials that people use different styles so the you know the pottery pottery changes styles through time, the weapons change styles, the clay figurines change styles, the architecture changes changes styles, and this is often this can be related to the say political or economic or social or environmental changes that the people are experiencing. What kind of things have you learned from this site specifically, with regards to that? Um, well, this is a large city that dates to the Middle Bronze Age, which is like uh, from 2000 to 1600 BC. It may, it may be um, the ancient city of Cabra, which was the capital of the Erbil region in the Middle Bronze Age. Um, so it's an opportunity to learn about a, a, a North Mesopotamian city in the Middle Bronze Age. And you, you know, Mesopotamia is famous 
for being the heartland of cities, the birth of urban civilization. But so much of, of what we know of that is from Southern Mesopotamia, places like Babylon and Uruk and Nippur and so forth. So Northern Mesopotamia is much less known. So, so uh, working at a site like this, you know, you're just learning all sorts of new things about how cities in, in the North were organized and what kind of community they had and what kind of architecture and what kind of social organization and what kind of economy and the whole nine yards. I know that you're working, you've mentioned actually uh, uh, twice uh, the uh, animal bones being found at sites. And I know that you're working with a zoo archaeologist, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, in, in the analysis of those bones. Can you tell me about some of the different kinds of forms of archaeology that you've worked with in the past specialists uh, in, in this field? Ah, well, there are many specialists um, because, you, you know, people in the past and now use all sorts of materials and you need different specialists to, to, who know how to analyze them. So animal bones is a good example. Um, you know, you need somebody trained in, in um, zoology or, or zooarchaeology, as, as you mentioned. Um, plant remains, same thing. You need an archaeobotanist who knows how to analyze and study plant remains under the microscope. Um, we had a pottery expert with us for the first few weeks, weeks of our season this time. And you know, people who understand how pottery is made and um, the different kinds of clay that are used and the different ways that it's shaped and how, how you, different ways to analyze it to get its chemical composition or mineral composition or understand how the different ways it might've been made. Um, we also have a, an expert in um, uh, remote sensing. So um, magnetometry. Where, where you can use different devices um, above the site, on the surface of the site, to see what's underneath. And um, that's my, my colleague, Andy Creekmore, he's, he's been doing that, doing a magnetometry survey at our site, and he's been able to map out all the architecture immediately under the surface. So you see all these houses and neighborhoods and the city wall and the temple and maybe a palace this season all you know by virtue of this the specialization in, in um, analysis of magnet mag, magnetic anomalies have, have, uh, so, oh sorry go ahead yeah I got, no, you go <laughs> i was curious about the uh changing technology over the years i mean for example satellite imagery has improved and 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 uh you can the use of magnets uh, to be able to detect what's under the earth what other developments uh, uh technologically speaking have uh, appeared in the field since you've begun Oh, there's been really a technological revolution in archaeology, which for, for an older archaeologist like me can be a little challenging. Like, I don't know, you know, I, I like doing things the way we used to do them, and, and we have to catch up with all these new technologies can be, can be uh, burdensome. But anyway, um, yeah, I don't know. There, there's, um, for example, um, we, we can use um, stable isotope analysis to, to analyze um, people's bones and teeth. So there are different, different um, stable isotopes like strontium, um, carbon, and so forth. Um, we, we ingest it in our bones through, by what we eat. And, our, and scientists can analyze our bones and, and determine levels of these stable isotopes in our bones. And, that, and from that, they can learn what we ate when we were children. 
And they can also determine where we were when we were children, because there are different, different types of isotopes have different proportions in different regions. So it's a new way of learning both about what people ate and also where they came from. And you know, it's a way to see, are, is, are such and such people local or did they come from someplace else? Or you know, what kind of mobility existed? And yeah, stuff like that. So it's, it's all sorts of new miraculous um, technological changes that are going on. Yeah, that's incredible. That's so cool. <laughs> I think that's amazing. Uh, I was curious, do you have any other projects that you're looking at in the region? Uh, and, and what do you hope to be working on in, in the future in the area? Well, frankly, um, I'm, I'm planning to retire from, from directing archaeological projects. Um, I have quite a backlog of data to, to analyze and publish. And I really think if I keep on digging, It'll just get bigger and bigger, and and I will never have any time to to catch up. Um, and you know, the older you get, it's more, it's a lot, it's it's a rather strenuous um, enterprise, and full full of um, stress. And um, I love it. I've always loved it. But um, I sort of feel that now it's time to let some uh, younger people take over. So I have a student, a former student of mine, who's now a professor. Um, who I've recommended that, that she take over the project next, you know, next time. And hopefully that will happen. I, I don't know. I don't really want to stop coming to Kurdistan. Maybe I can be a kind of consultant, you know, or something like that. Because, um, you know, once, you, once you've worked here, I've, I've been working here for 10 years now, um, it kind of gets in your blood. You really can't just leave. So, so I, I hope that I'll be coming back in other capacities. Well, I'm glad I got you just in time then, if that's the case. Yeah. Uh, Professor Glenn Schwartz, thank you so much once again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Professor Glenn Schwartz. Uh, and now here's my conversation with Professor Zainab Bahrani. Professor Bahrani, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to start with, um, since I spoke with Professor Schwartz as well about uh, his own excavation project, uh, I'd like to start by saying you're not working in excavation right now. You're working on restoration uh, on Badenan Gate uh, or Mosul Gate uh, in uh, Ahmadiyya. And I was wondering if you could walk me through the differences between preservation and restoration and excavation. These are all interconnected areas. Uh, but I was wondering if you could talk to me about the different kinds of practices that you put. Right. Well, thank you for that question. Yes, of course, they're, they're all connected in that they're all archaeological and historical projects, and they require some of the same um, practical decision making and preparation ahead of time. Um, so they're similar in some respects. Uh, where they differ is simply in that the research for excavation um, is, is research uh, for uncovering things and information that are perhaps not yet known. Um, with restoration and preservation, um, 
we have some of that as well as we are working to to uh, preserve and restore the gate and the staircase. We do uh, do some archaeological work and and find information that way, but primarily um, it's not focused on uncovering new information. It's focused on preserving what we already have. And that I would say is the major difference. Um, for myself, and I've worked in excavations as well, uh, I, given everything that's happened in the country um, in the past two decades, I've personally, um, as somebody who's Iraqi by birth, felt very strongly that we need to preserve our heritage as opposed to spending time um, excavating more. Uh, I respect people who excavate, but for myself, I felt that this was the time really to preserve the past. And could you walk me through the actual uh, Badenan Gate Restoration Project? Uh, we've met before. I actually filmed you uh, uh, on a day while you were uh, working at the site, but I was wondering if you could just walk me through the project again and what kind of progress have you made on it? Well, we, uh, I first uh, went to uh, Amadia in uh, 2013, um, and that was the first time that we began to do some of the documentation. But this particular project um, was funded later, and uh, we began in earnest in 2019 to produce all the baseline documentation um, which, in which we use all of the uh, most current uh, digital technologies and, and so on to document as thoroughly as possible, not just the gate, but the entirety of the site. Because the way that I see it, the project is called the Badinan Gate Project. Um, but in fact, it's much more than the gate. It's the entire site itself. Um, the site goes back to the Parthian period, at least, if not earlier. Um, so it's about 2000 years old. And uh, the gate was uh, constructed in the 13th century upon an area that is essentially a Parthian area with a, a staircase and rock reliefs that are about 2000 years old. Um, so we began to document all of that. Um, and then we began uh, conducting research. COVID came along, of course, in 2020. We spent a lot of time conducting research in archives and in the lab at Columbia. And then we went back in 2021 uh, to begin um, the, the on-site uh, work to dismantle the gate um, and to restore the parts that had been erroneously restored in a 1981 restoration. I wanted to go back because you mentioned uh, Parthian era, and I was wondering, uh, could you a, explain to our audience and me uh, what the Parthian era is, and how were you able to date uh, the rock reliefs and staircase at the site uh, to that era? Um, the, the Parthian era is a dynasty. It, it, the Parthian, the Parthian um, uh, rule is uh, a late period of in, antiqu in the antiquity of Mesopotamia. Um, so following the period in which um, that we refer to as Seleucid in which Alexander the Great and his followers uh, ruled the region. The Parthians are a, a local uh, 
uh, regional uh, dynasty uh, from Iran originally that took over. And then of course there were local um, rulers um, installed who uh, lived in this region. Um, the way that we were able to, to date the staircase and the rock reliefs is um, the rock reliefs can be dated on stylistic grounds and also uh, by carving techniques. The way that the rock reliefs are carved, the sorts of tools that they used, um, as well as the iconography and the style um, that is used. So it, it took a, a little bit of study of the rock surfaces themselves, as well as um, iconographic study. The staircase is dated on archeological grounds, um, which means and in terms of the, its layout and its relation, the relationship between the, the steps of the stairs and the rock outcrop and aspects of the construction next to it. So the relationship of one part of the structure to the other, um, the way that archeologists uh, date things. Yes, so, so this is, this is the, the site the the 13th century gate that we're now restoring um, was built uh, by Bedruddin Lolo, who is a Zengid dynasty ruler. Um, who's, uh, who had uh, a base also in Mosul. He unified in 1225 uh, Mosul and Ahmadiyya under his uh, authority, the Zengid dynasty. This was at the end of the Zengid dynasty and right before the rise of the Badinan Emirate. Um, so this is quite a bit later, um, but when um, this uh, new citadel was built by his predecessor, Imad ad-Din Zengi, also part of the Zengid dynasty. What Imad ad-Din and Bedr ad-Din did was that they uh, constructed their citadel without destroying the pre-Islamic remains, keeping intact the pre-Islamic remains. And for me, this was something that was quite fascinating about the site and that I felt um, that drew me to the site, to be honest, and, and that I wanted to study further. And so when the opportunity came to preserve this really a multi-layered, uh, multi-period site, um, I jumped at it. it. I felt that this was such an important location to study and to preserve because um, through this site, uh, uh, I can present a counter narrative to the narrative that we have heard about uh, the Islamic period not caring about the Islamic part, um, the past in, in Iraq and in Iraqi Kurdistan. And we can see that this was not the case at all, in fact. And that du during, <clears throat> excuse me, during the, um, the Middle Ages, the rulers, um, the Islamic rulers of this area actually preserved pre-Islamic remains and utilized them in, in their own citadel. Um, and this was a part of the story that I wanted to present as a counter narrative to what had been told um, in many historical accounts about um, the history of archeology span in this region. You delayed publishing information about Badinan Gate and numerous other sites in Iraq after 2013. Could you actually walk me through why this information is only becoming open to public access now? 
Yes, thank you, Aaron, for that question. Uh, we, in the beginning, we had always intended for it to be open access, but just as we started working in uh, 2013 uh, with the documentation in Amadiya, as I as I mentioned, and elsewhere in Kurdistan, very soon after that, ISIS took over Mosul, and it was quite a shock to us, of course. Um, and it, it became clear to me that we could not uh, make this open access at the time. It was a work in progress, but I was happy to make it open access as we worked through it. However, it seemed to me that we might be inadvertently creating targets. And so I felt at the time that this was really the wrong moment um, to open such site. There was a lot of pressure on me um, from colleagues to make it open access, but I felt that that was misguided because uh, my main goal in uh, creating this site is to provide the information, yes, but also to archive for future generations what we have. And I did not want um, too much attention to be paid at that time. Um, to to open uh, to to sites that could be found uh, and attacked. Uh, so it was important to me to keep it under wraps at the time. Um, now I feel more confident about making it open access, and now we've done more of the 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 content work. Uh, the 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 uh, as I said, the research, the peer reviewed research that we've. Um, done for the, the, the content work that we've placed in it. And now I feel as though we can open it to the public um, so that people can access those who are interested in learning something more about each of these sites, whether they're students or the general public, um, they will be able to, to access it now. And why was ISIS potentially interested in targeting those sites? Could we circle back to that real quick? Uh, that's that's such a difficult question because I mean, of course, ISIS uh, targeted a lot of pre-Islamic sites, as we know. But in fact, ISIS uh, primarily destroyed Islamic period uh, sites, shrines, mosques, a lot of shrines from from uh, the Islamic period, uh, Christian churches. Um, Shia shrines, uh, Yazidi uh, shrines. I mean, those those were their main targets as far as I could see. And we were documenting a lot of those things. We had documented um, uh, Yazidi uh, shrines already in 2013 before the attacks. Um, and we had begun a survey of all of the early Christian monasteries in the region, again, from uh, Iraqi Kurdistan all the way through to Turkey. And we were worried about those also. So we were not just simply thinking about the pre-Islamic material, but also of the later historical architecture. And um, for ISIS, it seems to have been um, a kind of a free for all. They were, they seem to have been happy to target the pre-Islamic remains, but they got, I think, less press um, in the West about the Islamic era. Um, I'm saying Islamic era because they're not just Islamic, but mm -hmm. other religions as well, uh, material that they were attacking. And in my opinion, um, or in my viewpoint, 
the reason that they were doing this is that they were trying to target the multiculturalism of Iraq. Because uh, in, one thing that I've always found so beautiful about my country is the fact that it, it's uh, it, it, it's diversity. We've had many religions, uh, many different um, shrines uh, devoted to particular religions, yes, but many of these shrines were also um, places where several religions worshipped, so that the shrine, uh, for example, of Nabi Yunus was not just Muslim, it was sacred also to Christians and to Jews. And we have many, many shrines in Iraq that way that are uh, sacred to all the Abrahamic religions. And uh, I think uh, very often ISIS tried to target such shrines. I mean, uh, shrines that are sacred to both Christians and Shias, for example, or to Yazidis and Shias alike, for example. So we have these this diversity of worship at particular uh, shrines that became targets. So I, it seems to me that what was being targeted is the diversity of the country, um, a kind of a desire to, to purify, if one can use such a term, um, in a negative way to purify it and to, and to turn it into something that's purely um, Islamic, but not Islamic in a way that I understand Islam um, in, in, a, in a, a very extremist uh, uh, vision of what Islam should be, which, um, of course, I, I and most Iraqis, I would say, totally reject. Mm -hmm. Also, to bring it back to the Badanan Gate, what part of what you like so much about it is that it incorporates pre-Islamic and uh, Islamic architecture that 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 even in the 13th century, there was like work to preserve that. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that these uh, misguided ISIS followers were saying um, was that, oh, well, we want to go back to, to the medieval Islamic past. And my feeling was often, well, you know, look at the medieval Islamic past <laughs> in Iraq. It's actually very diverse and multicultural. And the, the pre-Islamic remains were not targeted and attacked, and they've survived all of these centuries um, because they were respected and integrated into the identity of uh, the uh, the country, the people, the historical architecture. So, one place where I differ from many Western archaeologists, um, given that I am born in Iraq and I consider myself an Iraqi as well as an, um, of course, now an American in that I, I live and work in, in the US, but um, I'm originally Iraqi and where I differ from many of my colleagues is that I do not see that there was no interest in the pre-Islamic past until a group of, um, you know, uh, European explore men who are European explorers came in and taught us about our past. I, I don't accept that narrative, and I've been trying to challenge it for about 20 years now. Well, it's always good to poke holes in ISIS's logic. I find that <laughs> a source of comfort. Very much so. <laughs> I wanted to uh, ask real quick, um, this is something you brought up to me uh, when we actually met in person, uh, is that you are um, working in a very male-dominated field. And I was wondering if you could just give me some insight in your work 
in the past 20 years as a, as a woman in this field and uh, the challenges you've had and what you hope for the future in your field? Well, archaeology is everywhere still a male dominated field. There is this kind of idea of the persona of the, of the Indiana Jones type um, male archaeologist who, who goes into the exotic East to, to make great discoveries. Um, one of my pet peeves is this notion of great discovery, because very often um, things that archaeologists, especially in the past, claim to have, quote unquote, in air quotes, discovered, were actually known very well <laughs> to the local population. And if you read, um, you know, ancient historic, not ancient, but like Ottoman period historical accounts or early 20th century historical accounts, it's very clear that locals uh, showed archaeologists where things were, but yet they presented them as their own glorious discoveries. So I think the whole trope of discovery needs to be challenged as a colonialist kind of imperialist attitude, um, orientalist attitude towards the East. Um, so archaeology has been very uh, European dominated, Western dominated, as well as a masculine domain. Uh, women archaeologists do direct field projects in the Middle East, but there are very few women directing um, conservation, preservation, restoration projects. That's uh, even more than field archaeology, a truly masculine uh, domain. It's not that I'm the, the first person to do this, um, but it's still very, very unusual. I have to say, though, my experience has been um, wonderful, really. I work on site with um, a Kurdish partner from uh, the organization called KAO um, and with the Directorate of Antiquities of the Hook and with the Directorate of Antiquities, the, the larger directorate based in Erbil um, and uh, the workmen and the colleagues who I work with on site have all been incredibly respectful and uh, supportive um, um, of having a, a woman as a director, I have not experienced um, any any negative response um, working as a as a woman director of such a project in um, Amadia Amedi. Well, I'm happy to hear that. And uh, Professor Bahrani, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to speak today. I'd like to thank both Professors Schwartz and Bahrani for taking the time to talk with me. And thanks to you, of course, for listening. You can find our podcast on Apple, Spotify, and any of your other favorite podcast platforms. And you can check us out at curtistanin.net. If you have any questions for us as well, you can reach out to us at info at curtistanin.net. Thanks again. I've been Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan. Inside Kurdistan.